The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and backroads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you with us, riding shotgun as it were. We're going to be talking to someone today who is well-known to listeners of AM 1150 in Seattle, and we want him to be well-known everywhere. He has a head start, of course, with his acumen for all things car culture. And I'm talking, of course, about Vinny Ricci, best known to his fans and friends as New York Vinny. We're going to bring him on right now. But let's hear a little bit about this gentleman's background, because he is an aficionado of the road. Believe me, for over 25 years, New York Vinny has produced and hosted Drive Time Radio, which began as a featured radio spot and evolved into a one-hour automotive news, interviews and reviews show currently heard on AM 1150 Seattle. Vinny looks at cars the same way he does sports, with a sense of humor, a keen everyman's eye, and as a fan. Vinny grew up in the automotive business and has done just about everything in it. He was a licensed New York State inspector and collision damage appraiser prior to entering the world of radio, so it's fair to say New York Vinny knows cars from the inside out. And We're going to get the inside scoop from New York Vinny today. Vinny, it's so good to talk to you on Trip Talk. Gary, thank you, man. That was a great uh, intro. I, I almost feel like I, I wrote that myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you deserve every word and all the accolades, Vinny. We're thrilled to have you on here. This is a show about taking to the open road, North America, but particularly the 50 states and all that they have to offer. But in addition to that, we celebrate car culture. And so it was inevitable that we would ask you to join us because of your expertise, your personal history with cars of all kinds, and your ability to come up with dream road trips and then follow through by actually taking those trips instead of leaving them on the drawing board, as it were. So I'd like to get started, Vinny, by asking you, now, you and I are baby boomers, so I envision you as a youngster being one of those guys who would join your buddies, all of you with a rag in your hip pocket, under the hood of a car, making it spin like a top, working on it in the days before you didn't even know what was wrong with a car like now without hooking it up to a computer. That's not how it was back in the day for you guys. No, the computer was in your head. I mean, you listen to a car, and you listen to an engine or a transmission or a problem, and you could pretty much know what exactly it was uh, that, that that you were looking for. You know, you heard a tap, a tap, a tap, and you knew it was a, maybe a loose rocker arm. If you heard a clunk, 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 you knew that maybe one of your connecting rods might be loose and slapping against the cylinder wall. If you heard um, a... You know, a screech of some kind. Well, maybe you didn't have enough foil in there. And if you turned the key and nothing happened, well, then I think you knew that you forgot to put any oil in and you just forget about it and go get a new engine. <laughs> uh, you know what? That's perilously close to what I discovered by accident because I'm sure no mechanic, that's for sure. <laughs> but as we look at, at car culture and all of the years that have gone by and the change in styles, I'll give you an example. I would ride the school bus sometimes. I was a parochial school kid, and I don't know exactly why, but I was utterly fascinated with the Ford Thunderbird during the time, and it was a short era because, as you know, Thunderbird style has changed almost like you change your shorts. 
But I remember looking with joy ahead of us. There would be one of the guys on the route on the way to school. Somebody owned a T-Bird that had the elliptical taillights. And I thought that was the coolest thing on the road. And now I look back at Thunderbird and it seems like Ford must have decided that was going to be their experimental vehicle because the styles changed so much from the original. I think it was. Yeah, I think for... uh... Uh, you know, for a large uh, part of the uh, early 50s when they developed the Thunderbird and, um, you know, on through the uh, uh, the late 50s and the 60s, I think a lot of what you saw in the Thunderbird uh, the year before, the year it came out, came to fruition in the rest of the line uh, a year later. If you, There were styling cues that were done on the Thunderbird. Uh, that um, showed up in a galaxy um, just a year later, or um, you know, it would show up in a fair lane, or depending on the model car, the model Ford it was. Um, the Falcon, uh, people, you know, forget that the Falcon was in many ways uh, kind of a derivative uh, of the Thunderbird when it first started, and then uh, the Mustang was built off of the frame of the Falcon. So the Thunderbird is where they did a lot of their. Uh, um, uh, you know, much as Chevy did with Corvette, although Corvette was a different little animal for the Chevy because that was um, a, a kind of a one-off um, a competition for, you know, the sports cars that were coming over in the day, the Jensen Heelys and the, um, uh, excuse me, the Nash Heelys, and, uh, you know, those cars that were coming over for Europe, that was more of a competition for those as opposed to f- the Ford Thunderbird. And they have done so much at Ford. I have to tell you, though, Vinny, I'm going to tell one on myself here. I'm one of those people who will buy one make of car almost with a, an illogical loyalty to the exclusion of what might be perfectly fine vehicles and very enjoyable to drive. Have you met I will say, well, most people you have met have that kind of brand loyalty. You know the old story. If you buy a Chevy, well, you wouldn't own a Ford or vice versa. And if you really want to be a wild card, you buy a Chrysler. Well, well, you know, I think that for a while uh, that happened. I mean, my father was a Cadillac guy. He wouldn't own anything but Cadillacs. That was his car. That's what he felt was, um, it was not only just, uh, the brand of car, but it was something that he identified with, uh, as a guy who didn't have a lot of money, uh, when he was coming up and, uh, served in World War II and so on and so forth. Uh, the Cadillac was the symbol of, uh, the symbol that you made it in America. It was the high point of automobiles in America. And when you got to Cadillac, it was a symbol that you had achieved something in your life. And so my father, uh, for most of his life, uh, drove Cadillacs and wouldn't drive anything but, except for an occasional Buick here and there, because he really liked Buick. But it was either Buick or Cadillac for my dad. Um, I think with the onslaught of um, foreign makes in the late 60s and 70s, uh, the decline of the American automotive industry, where, uh, you know, if you want to stay loyal to Chevrolet, you, um, you know, you did that at the peril of passing up, uh, you know, buying something more reliable. Uh, but now that, uh, that that door was opened, I don't know that people stay as loyal to cars now as they do. I think right now it's a dollar proposition. Whatever gives you the most bang for the buck and is reliable, 
uh, according to, uh, you know, like a J.D. Power survey, that's what people are going to buy. That is a great point, too, Vinny, because I remember hearing as a kid about the concept, which seemed innately unfair to me. But now I kind of see the, the marketing sense that it makes because these guys want to stay in business. But this notion of planned obsolescence. And I won't mention any particular brands, but uh, this make of car was known for its reliability. Another make was reliably going to give out about 10 minutes after the warranty expired. And I thought, man, I am really seeing planned obsolescence in action. And then, as you indicated, the foreign cars, about mid-1970s, I started seeing Datsun, as they were known at the time. I would see Mazda. I would see Toyota, I would see Honda, they would show up and these cars not only were relatively inexpensive, especially if you didn't go for the high-end models, but also they just seemed to use less gas. And I thought, no wonder people are making the transition to trusting in, to making the investment in foreign cars. And for a lot of people, that seemed downright unpatriotic. Well, yeah, it was, uh, you, you know, you would, it's so funny you talk about this because I was doing um, my show this morning, uh, another show that I do with my uh, old broadcast partner, Michael Knight, and we were talking about Packards. And one of the things about Packard that really hurt them is they built such a good car that it didn't break down. It didn't go out of, you know, it, it lasted 5 or 10 or 15 years. And the whole American automobile idea was that you drive a car for three years or two years and you trade it in. Uh, you drive a car for three years and you trade it in. So you try to catch that sweet spot between uh, when the warranty is going to expire and when it's going to start to break down on you. And you get rid of the car, you trade it, you, you buy a new car. And that's what the whole automotive, the whole automotive business really was built on until the foreign brands came along and said, well, wait a minute, we, we built our cars to run, you know, because we don't do that in Europe, or we don't do that in Japan. We buy a car and we keep it a long time, and that car has to go 150 or 200,000 miles. And and so once they started building cars that they, you could get that out of, uh, you know, the Americans were sunk, and it took them a long, 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 long time to figure it out. How many Toyotas do you see that have 200, 300,000 miles on them? A lot of them. Kia's now. Um, you know, a car that was, uh, when it first came over from South Korea, a joke. Uh, now you get 200 miles, uh, 200,000 miles out of a Kia or a Hyundai with, without breaking a sweat. Very true. In fact, I can remember the days, probably more than 10 years ago, now maybe 15, where Kia was trying to make inroads in the American market by saying, Kia, the power to surprise, because if it turned out to be a decent car, you were surprised. And so they, they built that up. And whereas I think it's no secret and certainly not unfair to say that they were cheap cars in the beginning, not especially reliable, not prized. We're now at the point, and this actually happened within the last couple of years. I can remember being in the parking lot of a Costco, Vinny, and there was a couple there, and they were getting into their Kia. It seemed to be a late model, and I asked them how they liked their Kia, and they said, this is the only car we have owned since we got married where we never have any maintenance complaints, and we love it that we have a warranty that lasts so long. So if you pull the right levers in the American market and you actually deliver quality for the money, people will reward you with their hard-earned money in order to drive something that won't let them down. Right, right, exactly. You know, it's, it's funny. I remember 
I mean, I started doing road tests and, uh, and, and testing cars uh, back in the early 90s. And Kia was just here. I think the first Kia was 1990 that they imported. And I remember driving one, and um, uh, I, I closed the door, uh, opened the door, I should say. And when I opened the door, the, um, the pillar that the door latches onto moved. I mean, it, it just went back and forth. It was like a, a, a piece of tin. And I said that in my review. I said I wouldn't put my daughter in this car uh, mm. because it, it was so light. It looked so um, flimsy that I wouldn't. And, oh, the Kia guy called me up, and he was mad at me, and I, the Kia wouldn't send me a car for years. Um, and now I drive a Kia, and it's uh, among the best cars, if not the best car that you can drive out there. I mean, I will take the Kia Soul and put it up against any car that anybody produces today as far as reliability, as far as value proposition. Same thing with the Hyundais. They are spectacular cars at a good price point, and that's why you see so, so, so many of them out on the road. Yes, and I found that out for myself as to Kia's quality about a year ago, actually, Vinny. I took a road trip. Well, we flew to Boston, but then we wanted to tour New England, my partner Suzanne and myself. So we rented this Kia, and we took it from the airport, and I found out what it's like to drive in Massachusetts. Uh, everybody has their own rules of the road, and we took that all the way up to Maine and then New Hampshire and Vermont and drove back to Massachusetts. A spectacular trip, and that Kia never gave us a moment's trouble, and it was a very smooth ride for not being a top-of-the-line model. And I, I thought, this is why they have this good reputation, and they continue to do that. But they also seem to have this idea that they can keep improving the quality. It's almost incremental with them, and they bring their uh, their drivers, the loyalists, with them as they keep improving. They do it, and also, as you noted in one of your recent uh, Drive Time Radio episodes, we're seeing the same thing with Subaru, and that's a mighty good product, but even they want to make a better Outback, for example. Right. Uh, see, yeah, today, the era of somebody just buying a car, and it goes along with that, of just buying a car because uh, they love a Chevy or they love a Subaru, and Subaru might be uh, the loyalist of all the brands out there, the, uh, the one that uh, engenders loyalty among uh, their customers, uh, because people tend to own, you know, a, a three or four Subarus, you know, in a row. I know people that um, that would have never looked at a Subaru, and I put them into one. Uh, they, you know, came to me and said to me, uh, I want to buy a car, you know, what should I buy? I, I help people out doing that. And there's not one of those people that I've ever put in a Subaru who's come back to me and said, oh, man, you steered me wrong. You steer I hate this car. It's unreliable. It's this, it's that. Uh, that's where the brand loyalty has gone. And yet Subaru, as many companies has to, have to in today's environment, continue to improve because the automotive business is evolving uh, almost as fast as anybody can believe. You look at what's in a car today and compare it to what's in a car five years ago, seven years ago. 10 years ago, and they're different cars now. Now you drive a computer with four wheels on it, uh, which, you know, some will say good, some will say bad, but the reality is you're driving, uh, you know, a bunch of computers tied together with some fenders and doors. 
you are. And if I understand the situation correctly, this is this is the evil genius of technology. If you get under there, you, you pop the hood and you're monkeying around there and you're going to fix this and you're going to tweak that. Before long, if you don't have that computerized assistance, not only will you get lost in the process, but you may have voided your warranty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. Um, and it's sad because the day of that uh, shade tree uh, g- mechanic, the uh, garage guy on the corner uh, that uh, used to be is quickly disappearing in this country. And it's kind of sad uh, because now, well, you know, you go to a gas station, you don't get your car repaired at a gas station anymore. You get gas and you move on. Uh, the corner garage is quickly uh, going away because uh, these cars, uh, for the most part, have to be repaired a certain way and you have to buy the equipment. And to buy that equipment, you have to make a, a million or $2 million of an investment. And the average um garage corner garage can't make that kind of investment so you have to take the car back to the dealer they'll put tires on for you and change the oil and do those types of things but as far as being able to uh, repair a problem that comes up with a lot of the uh, electrical systems unless you're a uh, unless you have a lot of money to invest in a in a business like that which a lot of garages don't uh, those garages are going out of business i i think that I, I, I remember reading, I, and, and please don't quote me on this, but it's out there somewhere, uh, that there was something on the order of 25,000 independent garages over the last five years that have disappeared from the landscape of, uh, of automotive repair. Oh, wow. Well, that speaks to me, Vinny, because I can remember, and this was my favorite car. It wasn't my first car. And I'm always curious to know about people's first cars. My first was a, an old Delmont 88. My buddies uh, from high school used to call it the battleship. <laughs> they, they had uh, smaller and racier vehicles than me. But whenever we were piling in to go someplace to have fun, they all caught a ride with me, I noticed. but So that happened, but it wasn't my favorite car. It was a good car, but my favorite car was a 1972. VW Super Beetle powder blue engine in the back of course and I remember taking it I doubt that it's still in business all these years later as you say these these uh, independent garages are going out but where I grew up in Southern California in Fullerton California I went to Uva's Das Fixum house and he would be the guy, if you had a problem with your Volkswagen, he had such an intimate awareness of these cars, you would think right. that he was a bigamist with all of these car wives all around the lot because he gave tender, loving care to each one. And there wasn't an answer he couldn't come up with. If he couldn't fix it, he would tell you. He's an honest man there. But if you asked him anything about a Volkswagen, he could diagnose in about three seconds flat. Well, you know, Gary, that was the thing that um, that really struck me. Now, my dad worked on almost anything. Uh, he had mechanics that worked for him uh, that were from either Cuba or Argentina or Brazil, and they had uh, some really good, uh, you know, foreign car experience. Uh, they, you know, he brought them over from uh, those different countries. Uh, the one guy, Serge, that was his mechanic, uh, escaped from Cuba in a uh, 52 Styline Chevrolet that he uh, cut the back out of and stuck a boat in there, drove it to the beach, pulled the boat out of the back of the car, jumped in it with his family, and rowed toward 
uh, America got picked up halfway, uh, you know, the 90 miles between Havana and, uh, and Key West. And uh, those guys had, had great knowledge of those cars. And, um, and many of them went into business specializing in that one make that they knew. I mean, they were Japanese car specialists. They were Volkswagen specialists. Uh, you know, don't forget at that time, Volkswagen was, for the most part, the foreign car. You had some Toyotas and some, uh, you know, uh, other Japanese cars, the Datsuns and, and uh, uh, even a Subaru here and there. But for the most part, a foreign car was uh, either a Volkswagen or some kind of British uh, MG or, you know, something along that line. Yes, all of those. Oh, man, now you're bringing back memories. I recall getting into and This was unfortunate because I could tell there's no way I could own it. I was just heartbroken. I thought I might be able to scrape together the money or at least enough of a down payment to make payments on this red Opal GT. And when I sat in it, I didn't even get to the point of taking it for a test drive because I'm fairly tall. I'm six foot three. And I get into this thing and the floorboard Comp- uh, compartment there for your feet. The pedals were so tightly packed that I thought, oh, I'm going to crash this into a wall. I'll want to hit the brake and I'm going to hit the accelerator. And here was this gorgeous <laughs> vehicle and there was no way I was ever going to be able to drive it. So, you know, everybody has their market or their niche of a market. Yeah, those were, um, you know, I loved um, uh, Opals. Uh, it was one of the cars that my dad uh, like to work on. They were, you know, General Motors um, cars, uh, and um, he uh, he for some reason really enjoyed the Opal and the Vauxhall, uh, which was another um, make that uh, for some reason there was a number of them in the New York area, and he knew how to get parts for them and so on and so forth. And I remember we had my dad had an Opal Cadet. Uh, with his with a K, a uh, little station wagon that um, that he used for a gas station car. It broke down and he bought it off for of somebody and fixed it. And he used it for like the runaround car at the gas station. And it was one of the cars that I eventually learned how to drive on. And it was uh, it was just a great little four cylinder car uh, with nothing but wires that you know no no you know just relays and wires and a distributor and that's it. Not not complicated. Very easy to understand. Easy enough that uh, it's the car I learned how to tune up cars on because it was so simple uh to do but what a great little car uh but yet you know americans had no reason to buy foreign cars because gas wasn't expensive um it was tough to get them fixed it was tough to get parts for them so except for volkswagen which almost felt like an american car it was really tough to get uh, to get them serviced or get parts for them Yes, and I did rely on that specialist because I knew he would get it right, and I sure couldn't do it myself. And now here we are all these years later, Vinny. It's 2020, and we find that electric cars are making a bold statement on the American road, and I have a feeling that's only going to increase with time. In the few minutes that we have left, what is your assessment of the the state-of-the-art particularly in America with electric cars and the ability of power, the ability of people to take an electric car on a road trip, maybe if they want to go coast to coast. Are we moving into an era where that's going to be ever more common? Yeah, yeah. I I think electric cars are the cars of the future. 
I think, you know, I, I think we are going to move into an era where you will have a car for a particular purpose. If you need distance, uh, maybe you'll have a, a, a hybrid, some kind of hybrid. If you need something to roam around the city with, well, then you'll have an electric car. And if you need something uh, that, um, you know, for other purposes, uh, there'll be something in between. But I have driven several of the electric cars. Uh, 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 my favorite uh, right now still remains the Chevy Bolt. I think that that car is, uh, you know, 200 miles of range. It gives you um, uh, comfort. It gives you a certain sense of style, but yet not overly styled like the Tesla. And it, um, it, you know, and I think these cars, as the range gets bigger, which you're going to see here in the next few years as these batteries improve, uh, yeah, I think lots of people are going to be driving these cars uh, across country. I would love to uh, take a cross country or a nice road trip. You can take a road trip now. Uh, as long as you plan it out. That's what you have to do right now. You can get a car, jump in, take it to a place, charge it while you're having lunch, go further, charge it again at the motel at night. Uh, or if you're camping, uh, you're going to see more charging stations in these places. So, uh, yeah, I think the electric car on the road uh, will become as as popular and you're polluting the earth less and you're not using as much um you're using renewable energy resources i mean if you're in the northwest what could be better i love the sounds of that and i i agree with you that it's going to be easier to find the charging station so that you can keep powered up the hyundai for example there is a friend of mine up in maine who owns one she's thrilled a with its ability to accelerate it exceeded her expectations in that regard and she says if i don't have the heater on which a lot of times you do have to use in maine but she said if i don't have the heater on i can get 350 miles between charges well i know that's going to come in handy if you know how to plot out your trip because i remember stopping when i went coast to coast three years ago and i got to wyoming and the rest area in wyoming and they had multiple charging stations and a state-of-the-art rest area to boot and i thought this is the wave of the future thank god this is going to be available more and more as the years go on yeah you already see him um i was recently well i drove across country in a uh, toyota plug-in hybrid um, in December, and there were several um, uh, charging stations in rest areas. There were several um, charging stations at motels or hotels. So it was it was not hard to get off the road and you know charge your car up. Uh, as I said, it's it's about planning. You have to. It's not yes. you know the gas. Obviously, the gas engine, you get in, you turn it on, boom, you go. When you run out of gas, you fill it. With the electric, you have to plan a little more. Vinny, I'm sorry that we have to take our leave. I guarantee you a round two because I want to hear about some of your favorite road trips and help people plan the road trip of their dreams. That's next time we visit together. Drive Time Radio is your show. It airs Saturdays, I believe, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on 1150 yes. KKNW in Seattle. Always a joy to talk to you, Vinny. Your expertise and your personality make a great mix. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Gary, and please come on my show sometime and we can, uh, and we can uh, return the favor and talk about some of those great road trips.
Absolutely. Thank you, Vinny. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into American Road Trip Talk. Along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine, we remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.